This is week number 23 in our study of the book of Daniel, and last week we began chapter 7, and you'll remember that beginning with chapter 7, the the tenor of the book changes somewhat. Instead of Daniel um, getting the dreams of other people or understanding the dreams of other people or writing by a hand on the wall, instead of it being of that nature where Daniel's interpreting things that happened to other people and things that other people related to him, and now becomes Daniel who's the one who is having the visions and the dreams and is in need of understanding. And so he seeks out people to help him understand. In this first vision, it'll be someone in the vision itself who gives Daniel an explanation of it. In the visions that are yet to come, it'll be the angels, uh, mainly Gabriel, giving Daniel an understanding of the things that he's seeing. Um, because he desires to know, and he desires to be able to write them down. We saw last week that this dream or this vision that Daniel had in chapter 7 occurred in the first year of Belshazzar. You remember that's, we we left off in chapter 6 with Daniel having survived the lion's den, and so we're into the reign of Darius the Mede. This dream or this vision that Daniel had is some 10 to 15 years prior to that time. So Daniel's reflecting back on something that happened or that he saw uh, 15 years ago. And matter of fact, by the time he gets down to writing this, it's probably been closer to 20 years since he's had this vision. Because you remember, he doesn't write the book until at least the third year of um, the reign of the Persians as he'll mention over in chapter 10. So we're, we're 15 to 20 years removed from this. And what Daniel says is that when I had this, this vision, as soon as it um, was over with, I wrote down these notes about what I saw so I could remember it. And so he's referring back, as he pens the book of Daniel, he's referring back to these notes that he wrote some 20 years ago and is reflecting on those, and now he's, he's writing the story out in full. And so things maybe here are a little different than he actually saw them because he has a greater understanding. It's been 20 years since he first saw these things, and he's had other visions since then that we'll get to later in the book. And so in this first vision, you remember that Daniel speaks of the uh, four winds of heaven blowing and stirring up the sea. And we took a little peek ahead to see that that sea is not the literal sea, but it's a a representation of all the peoples and of all the nations and all the languages. And so out of this sea that's in turmoil, because the winds, that's just the north, south, east, and west winds, are blowing, that out of that sea rises four beasts. And Daniel describes these beasts as they come out. The first one that we saw last week that comes out of the nations, really, um, these are kings that rise up out of the nations. The first one was like a lion with wings on its back. And you remember those were eagle's wings. And he talks about this lion coming up out of the, the sea and then his wings being plucked him being stood up erect to walk like a man, and then he's given the mind of a man. And so we're kind of wondering what all that means, and these that first beast represents Babylon and the nation Nebuchadnezzar built. 
and the whole empire of the Babylonians. Remember, we, we talked about a man um, named Henry Langard, who in the 1840s to 1850s uh, was an archaeologist from, from Britain, went into the land of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and uncovered, unearthed a, a bunch of relics that he then took back to the museum in London. They're there today, and two of those were um, guards of the palace of the Babylonians. And those guards were great lion figures that sat on pillars outside of the palace. And those lions had wings on their backs, and they had the face of a man. And so as we describe this lion with wings and being given the mind of a man, we're referring back to the Babylonians. And that first kingdom, the first beast that rises out of the sea, is that of the Babylonians. The second one that we saw last week was that of a a bear, um, a large bear who was raised up on one side, probably ready to strike something, and then in his mouth he had three ribs, and he was commanded to go and eat much flesh. And so this bear, we talked about it, is not as uh, agile as a lion would be, as in the first uh, beast that came out of the ocean or out of the sea, but he is large and somewhat slumbers, moves slower. He represents the Medo-Persian empire. Raised up on one side speaks of the military might of the Persians compared to the Medes. Uh, the Persians much stronger, much better in battle than the, than the Medians were, but nevertheless, they were joined to make one kingdom. And the, the three ribs in his mouth, uh, some believe, represent three uh, empires which came into alliance to try and stop the Medo-Persians. They were the Lydians, the Egyptians, and the Babylonians formed an alliance to try and stop Medo-Persia from taking over. But we talked about this, that this great bear represents the, the mass of the armies of the um, Medo-Persians. There is written in history that they sent as many as 2.5 million men in one army. One place even refers to 5 million men invading. And so you may join with other people, you may try and stop them, but there's 2.5 million people coming at you. And while they may not be agile and they may not move fast, their force is unstoppable. And that proved true for the Lydians and for the Egyptians and for the Babylonians. The Medo-Persians wiped them all out, took their lands, took their nations, took their people. And uh, so this bear speaks of the Medo-Persian empire and um, it coming up as the second beast out of the sea. So that kind of takes us to where we're going to be at today as we look at the third and fourth beasts that rise up out of the sea. Um, They begin down in in, uh, verse 7, I believe it is, of Daniel 6. And so we'll read 6 down through um, about, well, we'll go all the way to 14 so we can get the full vision that Daniel saw. So beginning in Daniel chapter 7, in verse 6, there the scripture reads, After I kept... After I kept looking, after this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. 
The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large teeth. It devoured and crushed it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and his hair and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels with a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to, given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. So Daniel... Um, we'll stop there. I won't go in, into the, the Son of Man because um, we won't get that far this week. Uh, we a lot to talk about in these third and fourth beasts. So the, the third beast comes up out of the, the sea. And you remember last week I mentioned that I believe that this chapter 7 is a parallel to chapter 2. Chapter 2 being the place where um, Nebuchadnezzar had his vision of a great statue, and the the head of the statue being made of gold, uh, representing the Babylonian kingdom, corresponds in this chapter 7 to the first beast that comes up out of the sea, uh, the one that looks like a lion and has eagle's wings on his back. And so the head of gold, the lion with eagle's wings are the same. They represent Babylon. The second one that we saw back in chapter 2 was the uh, chest and arms of silver, and those represented the Medo-Persians, as does the bear that comes up out of the, the sea also. So now we come to the third, which I again believe is parallel to what we saw in chapter 2. In chapter 2, what was the third kingdom? The Greeks, and represented by what in the, in the statue? by bronze in the belly and of the thighs. And so here we have the third beast that Daniel sees, and it is the a vision of a leopard with wings, four wings on its back. Now, I did some research because this represents Greece and what was true about Greece, especially under the reign of Alexander the Great. It moved fast, right? I mean, Alexander um, uh, died in 323 B.C. He was born in 356 B.C. So he's 33 years old when he dies. And in the time that Alexander led the, 
the armies of the Greeks, they conquered not only Europe, all of Europe from end to end, also Africa, and all the way over to take all of India. So they greatly expanded the kingdoms that had been before them. You know, the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians, mostly in the land that's today Syria or Iraq, Iran, up into Turkey some, but mainly in that area of the Mesopotamia, Greece greatly expanded that and did it so rapidly. And so you think of a leopard as what's true about a leopard. Very fast, right? Well, that's what I thought. And so I did some research. Not as fast as you think. A leopard can run about 36 miles an hour. Okay? If you look at all the mammals, right, the leopard doesn't make it into the first 10. He's pretty slow compared to a lot of animals. I mean, you've got, um, you got the cheetah who's probably the fastest at like 60, 65 miles an hour. But then you also have things like antelopes, which are very fast. You have gazelles, which can outrun a cheetah any day. You've got even um, the um, brown hare, a rabbit, can outrun a cheetah. And so the, the cheetah is fast, okay, but he's not as fast as all these other animals. So, I mean, a leopard. So why a leopard and not a cheetah? Uh, <laughs> Souped up by what? He's got four wings. wings. So you continue and you you move from the mammals to the birds, right? And then you have things like the falcon or the eagle or um, several other birds. And they go at not 50 or 60 miles an hour. They go at like 200 miles an hour. And so the birds are much faster than the mammals are. And so... um, so then you have not just one set of wings on this guy, but what? He's got two sets of wings. He's got four wings. So maybe, maybe it's just that a leopard with four wings can outrun any other animal. Okay? So I was disappointed. I really thought that um, this leopard would be faster than all the other animals. But as a matter of fact, the charts that I looked at, the leopard didn't even make it into the charts. And they went, you know, the first 20 animals or so of being the fastest. So I thought it would be way up there. It's not so much. He can only run at 35, 36 miles an hour. So pretty slow compared to some of the other animals. But with the wings and the souped-up leopard, you have the fast-growing, fast-expanding kingdom of Alexander the Great. Now, what else is characteristic about this beast that comes up that looks like a leopard and has four wings on its back. Has four heads, which represent what out of Greece? Four kingdoms that arose out of Alexander's death. Yeah, the four the four generals really who took over the kingdom of Alexander the Great. Now this wasn't like when Alexander died, they said, okay, let's sit down and let's divide up the nation and we'll take it, right? No, they decided it through wars with one another. And so for about 20 years after Alexander died, you had these different generals warring against one another. And ultimately, it wound up being four kingdoms, the one um, up in uh, Macedonia, one in Asia Minor, one in Syria, and one down in Egypt. 
And the kingdom was not as big as it had once been, such as up in Macedonia. They didn't go all the way uh, to England, what we call today England at that time. They stayed in Macedonia, which would have been just to the north of Greece. And actually, you had five kingdoms. Greece kind of stood on its own, but it later became part of Macedonian kingdom. Go ahead. Um, Leopards, they're not the fastest. No, they're not. But they're considered to be among the most intelligent of the cats. Yeah. And they also are the most geographically widespread. They go all the way from Siberia to Africa. And they were in southern Europe all the way to Arabia. And there was no other cat like that. No. Of antiquity that the explorers, they saw the leopards everywhere. Of the expanse yeah. of the kingdom. Yeah, I think it is. And and so this leopard represents the kingdom of Alexander that later gets divided into four kingdoms. Now, that of where Babylon was would have been, and, and where the Medo-Persians were, would be what we call Syria today. And so the Syrian kingdom, after Alexander the Great, um, was ruled by a man named Seleucus. Okay, and Seleucus had a son. And before his last battle, he appointed his son to be heir of the kingdom. His son just happened to be named Antiochus. And so Antiochus had children who became rulers. And later, you get all the way down into uh, the 100s, and you have a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, Right? the one who comes and desecrates the temple of Jerusalem. And so this leads to what we'll talk about later, the abomination of desolation, which Daniel talks about twice in his book. So we have much to say about what results from the, this kingdom of Alexander the Great that ultimately leads to um, Antiochus being in control of the area of Syria, which includes the Mesopotamia, includes where Israel is today includes Iraq and Iran. All of those nations today would have been what was called the Syrian Empire. And so later, we'll come back to this in great detail because Daniel comes back to it. So kind of setting the stage for what's going to be later. All right, so that's the third beast. It represents Greece. It comes up as different than the others before it. And... So we now have three animals that have been identified. You have the lion, you have the um, bear, and now we have this um, leopard. Okay, so we keep going, and we come to verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, and extremely strong. Now you notice Daniel doesn't do what in this particular? He doesn't identify it with an animal, right? This one's not distinguishable as an animal. This one's just worse than the ones that were before it. And he even goes into detail that it is different than the ones before it. Now why he says that, I'm not exactly sure, because at the very beginning he said they're all different from one another, right? When he first began to introduce them, he said four beasts come up and the each one different from the ones before it. But this one is significantly different. This one's unlike any of the others that have come from before it. 
Now, you'll, you'll notice that he, he gives us more description here about this one. Um, it's extremely strong. It had large iron teeth, which obviously refer to what? I mean, it used to be obvious to people, but maybe today it's not so obvious, right? This is what people said was undoubtedly the Roman Empire. Okay, that's where they went because Rome was strong. Uh, you know, they wore armor, and so this had to represent the Roman Empire. And we'll talk about that some more here in detail, but maybe not. But the thing that's true about this particular beast is that if he didn't get you with his mouth and devour you, then what would he do? He'd trample you with his feet, right? So there's no escaping the the grip or the terror of this particular beast. And it's different from all the beasts that were before it. And it's unique in that it has ten horns on its head. Okay? Now... Don't know exactly what those horns look like, right? Um, I mean, there are deer today, large or elk, who have antlers that would have ten points. So maybe it's talking about something like that. Or maybe there are ten individual crown, horns coming out of its head. I mean, rams have horns, right? Goats have horns, but not ten. So this one's a little different than what we see today. And maybe that's part of what makes it terrifying is that it's got these ten sharp pointed horns that come out of its head. Don't know exactly. Okay, but I think the horns are significant. And we'll get into why they are as we go through this. And especially as we see later visions of Daniel, the horns will return again. Now, there's ten horns, and Daniel's looking at the horns, right? And then up comes a little horn. Now, do you think that's a little horn? Is it smaller than the other horns, or what's going on here? I mean, physically smaller? Is that what he's talking about, or is it just later than the others, and has it grown the full size? I mean, could be a small nation, right? And gets bigger because here it's clearly smaller, right? Or it's small because he calls it a little horn. But this little horn, maybe this is what he means when he says that greater in appearance. What's what's the little horn do? All right. Well, well, right. In the vision, he uproots them. Now that's got to be painful, right? Have three of your horns yanked out of your head. I'd be a mad beast too if that happened. So he, he, he takes out three of the other horns, and then what else? What else is true about this little horn? All right, he has eyes like the eyes of a man, and he has a mouth that what? Utters great boasts. So I believe that this horn here, because it has eyes of a man, and it has a mouth that is boastful, speaks of a man, not of some horn, or it speaks of a, 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 a ruler that will rise up that looks like a man, talks like a man, speaks like a man, is a man. 
Okay, so because that's why he specifically says that this one has eyes like that of a man and a mouth that boasts like a man would boast. So I think this horn, this 11th horn, if you will, is a man. And he speaks directly here about giving it the appearance of a man. Go ahead. Well, one interpretation that I've read is that he doesn't really have his own nation as a king, but that through intrigue, he has the nations rise up. And with his direction, seven of them get rid of three of them. Right. But it, but yeah, but here we only have three that get, you know, that that are gone, right? Now later, and we'll see all this. Even this morning, we'll see this that these nations do war against one another, and then they form an alliance, and so there is a lot going on of political undertones here, of yeah, of, of co- uh, coalition of nations. Um, and it's possible that this one horn doesn't have a nation of his own, and that he gets all the other nations. And so, not exactly sure, but you see that this horn that comes on the scene appears to be a man. Okay, and it's the first time in these beasts that Daniel has looked at where you get any hint that you have a man involved. The others look like beasts, and they act like beasts. Go ahead. Right. 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 It is a man. Um, I believe this one is. The others, you have to. They may not be men. They may be demons that rule kingdoms or that lead kingdoms. I mean, we don't know because Dan- we're just in Daniel, right? And this is Daniel's first vision that he had a while ago, and so you take it for what it says. And don't try and read too much into it, but there are certain things you can ascertain from the actual vision itself. Go ahead. Yeah, to the prairies. That's right. That's right. And and so there is progression here, I believe. Absolutely. And you even see that in the kingdoms that have existed in the world, that there's been progression. Good. No, no. But, but it also, like, they would say that horns were things like mountains and, and hills and summits. It was the peak of power. So right. Yeah, and then that's what's going on here. Now, this one, obviously, this, this fourth beast has great authority because he has ten horns. 
So there's, there's, this beast is unlike the ones that came before it. So, um, but you also notice, and I think this is what caused Daniel so much trouble with this dream, is that you don't just simply take out a horn and uproot three horns by their roots. I mean, that just doesn't happen because, like you say, these represent power and authority. But in this case, this one smaller horn uproots three other horns. So they're, he, he's troubled by this, greatly troubled. Right. It's That's the one that actually has the power. I mean, the horns are not the power. The horns represent the power of the beast, right? The beast has the horns. So it's the beast that is empowered. But he gets his power from the horns. Okay. The horns are, though, his representative of the beast. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Of, of this one beast that is dreadful and terrifying. So you have to start thinking about this a little bit, right? And, and so I believe this is a man, but there are parallels that are unmistakable between what Daniel is seeing and what later John writes about, okay? So I'm compelled to go and look at what John said over in Revelation because there, these things are very, very similar. Look over in Revelation chapter 13. And when I, when, I was, when I first taught Revelation, I felt compelled to go back to Daniel, but we never went to this vision in Daniel. We went to chapters 9, 10, and 11, where we talk about 70 weeks and, and the coming Messiah and those types of things. But I never went back to this vision, but this vision is clearly, clearly a parallel of what happens over in chapter 13 of Revelation. So just, just read with me here, beginning down. We'll just start in the first verse. So what's, what's happened just before chapter 13 is that the dragon, which represents Satan, has been cast down to the earth. He has been able to go into the heavens and go before God and accuse the brethren and all of that. In this point, he's been cast down to the earth and his realm is only on the earth. He's not allowed to go anywhere else. So he's enraged. And so it's the devil who is this person who's spoken of when it says in verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. So this is the, the, the devil having been cast down to the earth, standing on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his head were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw, now listen to this, I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. Those are three beasts, right? We've already come before this beast. And the dragon gave his power and his throne and great, and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? 
There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and an authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So parallels between what Daniel writes and what John sees many years later? Yeah, ten horns, right? Beasts coming up out of the sea. You've got um, not boasts that this horn is doing, but what? Blasphemes against God and against the people of God. And so this is a unique beast. He gets his power from where? From the dragon. So this is demonic power, not necessarily human power. And that's why I mentioned what I did about, well, yeah, they are, I think they represent people, the, the horns do, but maybe not people who have their own authority or their own power. It comes from the demons. And so this is, um, I think, quite parallel to what, I mean, you see both the, the leopard and the lion and the bear all combined in this one beast that now John writes about. So this is parallel to what is going on over in Daniel's vision. Daniel doesn't see everything that John does, but he sees enough for it to be clear that these things relate to one another. Now look over in chapter 17 of Revelation, and you'll see some more parallels. This is the same beast that we're talking about here. Okay, there, in, in Revelation... There's only one beast, okay? There's not multiple beasts. And that beast is whom we know as what? It's not Satan himself. It's, it's the Antichrist, okay? Is who the beast is over in Revelation. Now, in 17 can be very confusing. I'll just admit that right up front. And later, a few years from now, when we get to Revelation 17, we'll make it all clear. But for now, we're just looking at the parallels. Look in, uh, beginning in verse 3. This is where uh, Daniel, sorry, John is taken and gets a new vision. So this is, this is different from what he's seen before. So Revelation 17, verse 3, and he, being the guy who he talks to in verses 1 and 2 here, And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Same beast we saw back in 13. (coughs) Right? Seven heads, ten horns. Same beast. And you have a woman sitting on him now. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a cup, a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and, the, and of all the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly, And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. 
the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and to go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received the kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. Okay, now remember, the beast in Revelation is the Antichrist, and is the only beast that's there. There are not four beasts, there's only one. And so the beast gets his authority and his power from these human kingdoms and kings who give their kingdoms over to the beast. Now, the harlot represents Babylon, which is the city of Babylon, the center of the the power in Revelation, the earthly power in Revelation. Now, you'll notice, you don't see it quite all here, but this harlot, Babylon, is carried on the back of the beast, which means she gets her authority by that that the beast gives to her. Ultimately, what will happen is that the beast and the ten kingdoms that are joined with him will destroy Babylon. They'll turn on their own, and they'll wipe out Babylon by God's plan. That's God's plan is for these all to join together as one coalition and basically to destroy themselves as they prepare for battle with God. And so they wipe out their own. They wipe out Babylon themselves. So while it's all not clear, right? Clearly there's parallels between what's going on in Daniel and what's going on in Revelation. You've got the beast. You've got the ten horns. You've got blasphemies. You've got arrogance, you've got boasting going on, and it's not clear exactly how they play together, and I'm not trying to make it clear. What I want you to see is that there are parallels between what goes on in Revelation versus what goes on in Daniel's vision. Now, I have a reason that I want you to see those parallels, because this goes to the reason why I believe that the fourth beast in the image that, or in the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw, is not Rome. These things all tie together. In Revelation, when is this kingdom that we see that's represented by the beast with ten horns? When when is it in time space? It's definitely future from when John wrote. Okay. And by the way, John wrote when. Debate about that, right? There's debate. Some people want to put it pre um, the destruction of Jerusalem. I don't do that. I put it afterwards. 
right? I put it in the 90s when John wrote it, and you get that from some of the church fathers who actually talked to John, who said that he wrote it late in his life, and John didn't die until the 90s. And so um, the book written in the 90s, past all of the fall of Jerusalem and everything that happens um, to the Jews and their dispersion. And so John writes this, as you said, as still yet future. Okay, Christ speaks of this in his time as still yet future because he talks about the end of the age. So we're talking about the time that comes at the very end of the age of grace, the age that we're in now. Okay, so it's the time at the very end. So you've got this kingdom, right, that is one beast, ten horns, seven hills, seven heads, all this imagery going on. And I've read the arguments to say, well, the seven hills are the seven hills that Rome was built on. That's a stretch at best, okay? At best, that's a far, far stretch. And so I don't buy that. This kingdom that we're talking about here doesn't exist until the end of the age. And in Daniel's vision, how many kingdoms are there? Four. Four. And we know what the first three are, right? It's very clear what they are. The fourth one, not so clear, but here it is represented at the end of the age. There are parallels. This is the same thing Daniel's seeing back in his vision in you know, five something that John writes about at the end of the first century. And so I don't see room in my personal view for there to be any Rome in either the statue or in Daniel's vision. So when you talk about the iron teeth, what you're talking about is this beast that's written about in Revelation, not about something that existed thousands of years before that. My view the seven hills, you know, I mean, to me it's pretty obvious. It's, well, I think it's like what, what Chris was saying. Hills also represent power and nations and pinnacles. And so you've got seven hills, you've got seven heads, probably correspond, probably the same thing. You've got seven horns left because three were uprooted, probably the kings of those seven kingdoms. So I don't, I don't, you know, the seven hill theory about Rome is a stretch. I mean, I've, I've read it. I mean, you can go and read it, right? It's, I mean, they have this analogy that Rome was built on seven hills. Yeah, maybe. I mean, read it for yourself. Don't believe me. Here's what, my whole purpose. Am I trying to cause you confusion? No. My purpose is this. Don't believe what you believe because you heard someone else espouse it and it made sense. Okay? Be provoked in your thoughts to study for yourself. If it is Rome, then reconcile the beast that Daniel sees to this beast in Revelation. It's a revived Rome, right? Oh, really? Does it look like Rome is reviving? I mean, it's split into more nations now than it ever has been. Right? Well, those are going to come together and form a, a union. doesn't look like it. doesn't look like it. And by the way, why would the, the end of the world be based in Europe instead of in the Mesopotamia where it all started and has always been centered? 
doesn't make sense to me. So my, my, I'm trying to provoke you to think so that you won't just accept the theories that you've heard in the past. Mm-hmm. Read it for yourself and you reconcile it because your, your eschatology has to reconcile all these things, not just some of them. As you put it together, you've got you to gotta be able to take all of the picture. It's sort of like I, te- I teach you about doctrine, right? If your doctrine can't encompass all of the scripture, then there's something wrong with your doctrine. It's incongruent somewhere. It does, it's not right somewhere. Because you have to be able to speak to all of the scriptures, not just part of them. Same thing for your eschatology. It must take in all of the revelation, not just pieces of it, and leave the others. Well, I don't know exactly what that means. You can't go there. That's not, that's not kosher. That's not legal. You've got to be able to take them all. And if you can't reconcile them all, then don't come to a conclusion. Stay open. Stay, and, and continue to study and to look until they all begin to fit together for you. That's what I'm trying to provoke you to do. Don't just accept the arguments. You know, man, we all greatly respect, right? John MacArthur. He wrote, you look in a study Bible, some of you have it, right? It absolutely says this is Rome, does it not? Then go and listen to his message in 2011. He wrote, you know, a study Bible back in the early 80s. The book was published in 83. Most of his notes were from the late 70s and early 80s. His view changed. You can go study his sermons now that he preached in 2011 about the end times, and he doesn't say it's Rome anymore because he stayed open. He stayed teachable. That's what we need to do because it's not, you, you can't be dogmatic, and I'm not trying to be dogmatic. I've just told you what my view is. But don't just accept old theories and old, old things that men have taught for all the years and it has to be right. It doesn't. These things are, are not chiseled in stone anywhere. And neither are their theories about what they represent. Neither is mine, by the way. Go ahead. I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. In the, um, in the, this came to me in the last week, which is really the last seven years of the tribulation period. Yeah. Is what this kingdom really represents. It's a harlot being idolatry and representative of false religion. Views is that that will be Islam. And that when you look at the 24 elders, the church has already been um, uh, already gone to heaven. Uh, because the 24 it's one theory, heaven, right? I am pre millennial. I mean, I am pre trib, by the way, but nevertheless, that's just one theory. That's just one theory. <laughs> is that the 24 elders. Right. That is there, and that what is false religion takes over the world, persecutes the real love of Christ and God, exterminates all that, or they all all leave, uh, they're caught up with Christ, and then uh, after that, then uh, the beast, Antichrist, then uh, puts up a you know, dedication to Zeus in the temple. And uh, that's desecration. Desolation. And he wants everyone to worship him. Right. Not the false religion that he used to get him to the very end. 
you know. Yeah, well, you know, in, in Revelation, there is true destruction on the face of the planet that has nothing to do with the Antichrist uh, for the first three and a half years. It has nothing to do with him whatsoever. And now, he's on the scene, but he's not causing the destruction. It's natural destruction that's happening. Uh, earthquakes and, and turmoil and, and tsunamis and all of this stuff, where, to such an extent that a third of the world's population is killed. Today, that'd be two billion people are just wiped out. And then you have another third of those, which gets you down to half of the people on the planet, all die in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And so there's great upheaval. And then the Antichrist comes on the scene as the savior of all. So it's that turmoil and that destruction that sets the stage for people to be duped into believing in the Antichrist. Because the world is not as we know it today at all, not even close. Half the people on the planet have been killed. You're talking about three billion people that are killed. Not just, you know, we see great disasters today and maybe there's thousands. We're talking about three billion people. Yeah, well, the famines are a result of the natural disasters is what causes the famine. So anyway, we, we need to go back to Daniel. My whole purpose in going to Revelation is to show you parallels. And why do I believe there's only four kingdoms and not five or six in the statue? It's because of what Daniel sees here in four beasts. And there are parallels between what Daniel sees and back to the statue. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. It has to be Rome, you know, it's got to be the Vatican, there's Antichrist as the Pope, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but we also have seven continents sure. on this planet. And doesn't it say in Scripture that the Lord Himself is going to be bringing in things like these earthquakes and so on? Oh, yeah. Escalate? Yeah. Well, if you look at national uh, geological graphs, and you take a look at the frequency of extreme earthquakes, it's like this. Oh, yeah, it's up. And we went to, to New Zealand like the year after they had that huge earthquake there in Christchurch. And they had like 400 aftershocks a day in that city. They can't even bring it back to where it was. Yeah. And then, of course, off the coast of Japan. And that whole ring of fire is not the only place. South America, the Andes. But seven continents. Could they be. did say that the oceans are going to receive, mountains are going to drop. So Later. Later. Later, right. <laughs> but all of these earthquakes of these natural disasters and as well as a nuclear power being spread, and now the latest thing is Iran getting the bomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, when that war happens, it's pretty easy to imagine how they lose half the world's population in very quick order. Well, and just remember always, and I, I don't disagree with anything I've heard, just remember always, always, that that power in that last nation, in that last kingdom, is that of the enemy himself. It's demonic. It's not natural. It's not just people doing what they want to do. It's guided and undermined and strengthened by that of, the, of Satan himself. And we haven't seen that yet. No. We're not there yet. And God's in charge of that. Uh, yeah. Everything that you read, it's just a, a prophecy. Right. And, I'm, and I'm, believe me, I'm not trying to pin a date. I'm not trying to pin a people. I'm not trying to pin a location. Because there's more to come. And we can't, and it's not ours to know. 
What I am trying to do is perk you to not accept everything you've heard and everything you read because a lot of it's not right. And it's clear, study the scripture and see if what they say makes sense. And it doesn't in many cases. Back to Daniel. (laughs) Chapter 7. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did. On purpose. (laughs) Yeah, when you... The woman who you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. It is centered in Babylon. It's not centered in Europe. It's clear that it's centered in Babylon. And Babylon is the same Babylon that we've been talking about all along. It's not some new different place that's now over in Europe. It's centered in Babylon. Always has been, always will be. And so... I. I just can't see Europe in the in the mix. Maybe I'm just dense. Okay, back to Revel- uh, Daniel chapter seven. Now you can see that when we get to Revelation, we'll have all this figured out by then, right? <laughs> we'll know more than we did know. Let's just put it that way. We'll know more than we did know. So there there are clear parallels between. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 and between Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation 13 and 17. They're there. You you can't deny them. And so from that is why I say there are four nations. There are four kingdoms. There's not five. There's not six. There are just four. The fifth one is the eternal kingdom of God himself. Otherwise, Daniel would have seen more beasts coming up. And the, and the fourth beast that he, see, that he sees would not be parallel to what happens in Revelation. I could be wrong. Go ahead. It's about time. <laughs> My personal view? No. 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 I mean, it's something in the in the last kingdom. I'm not exactly sure why. Right? What? The I think the ten horns represent the ten toes in the in the statue. I think that the three being uprooted could be very well the clay mixed with uh, iron. Some not as strong as others. The three get uprooted. So I, I think all those things have parallels, and you can you can take them as far as you want to. But I don't see anything that that convinces me they're not four beasts. And, and just four, not more. And that the statue, I've said this before, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw is all-encompassing. There aren't kingdoms that control the world that are not seen by Nebuchadnezzar from an Old Testament perspective. Now, I have to say Old Testament, Right? Because the age of grace is not explicit in the Old, Old Testament. The Roman kingdom was during the age of grace. Go ahead. Because they're sequential in And they are. At the same time? 
around Israel, uh, Babylon, Persia, Greece. Right, and they all exist. Right. The fourth beast, if it were Rome, first of all, is not mid-east century. Right, unless you take Alexandria, then you're closed, right? Well, yeah, <laughs> but they never really dominated. No, they didn't. No. And you're right. You know, yeah, and you know, I wouldn't really say they changed their mind. They just remained open and teachable. And, and, and so that's where you always have to stay. Um, I mean, occasionally you change your mind, but most of the time you just get more information. And so you believe what you, what you, you see it from a different perspective. Yeah. Are you sure about that? <laughs> we'll get there in chapter 9, right? <laughs> with Rome. Right. Right. Now, one day when I get the courage and I have a little more information than I have today, we'll take an aside and we'll talk about the eschatology of Islam. And you will be shocked you absolutely will be staggered by what Islam believes in their eschatology. It will blow your mind. But I need a little more information, a little more time to study, and then we'll take an aside and we'll walk through that. It is outrageous, to say the least. Opposed to everything that you believe about eschatology. Absolutely turns it on its head. So we'll talk about that one day when I get the courage and have a little more information. So, Daniel, chapter 7. We've now finished verse 8. I told you that we would move slower, right? Did I not? I warned you. I warned you. Okay. 17 minutes after, I'm not going to try and get into the Ancient of Days. We'll talk about the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, two very, very significant phrases the next time. <coughs> Go ahead. I have a question of clarification. Were you were saying <laughs> in uh, Revelation, yes. you were just clarifying, meaning that that one beast was talking about the beast rising because... Uh, the beast that comes out of the sea. And not the literal one beast in Revelation, but it wasn't, it wasn't saying that there were four beasts like there were in... Right. That's right. Okay. And, and, and that, that one beast on which the harlot sits is the unique one with the ten horns. Yeah. The, the ten horns is what designates the Antichrist. Clear as mud, right? <laughs> There's a lot here, is there not? And you just got to kind of put it all out on the table and then try and figure out how it all fits together. And so that's what I'm just loading you up with everything for you to think about. But I, again, my, I didn't start the study of Daniel that probably will go to Ezekiel um, before we get to Revelation. 
just to cause confusion or because it's sensational, because I believe that, that we're at the end of the age. That's, that's not my purpose. That's not my purpose. Kind of what Joel said this morning is that your study of prophecy is what directs your, um, your worldview, it's what directs your evangelism, is what affects your hope and your security. All of those things are bound up in what you believe about these things. And, and you know, the prophetic books were not given to cause confusion or to cause you to wonder or to cause us to have debate. That's not why the Spirit inspired those books. And, and, they, and they weren't just given as um, pleasure reading or something that you should do on the side. They were given to be studied, to be understood, to trust the Spirit, to illumine your mind, and to give you an understanding beyond yourself of what is to take place. That's why God gave Nebuchadnezzar the dreams. That's why he gave Daniel the visions. That's why Daniel's given interpretations. That's why John wrote Revelation. It's all to encourage and to give hope and to give you perspective so that you will not be duped as the false Christ and the, and the world gets worse because it's not getting better. Regardless, regardless of what some of true believers believe, it's not getting better. Birth pains get worse, not better. They never get better until it's over, right? And Christ described the end of the age as birth pains. They intensify and get worse until it's done. Then it's all good. And that's the way it's going to be at the end of the age. So that's what's coming. And, and there are true believers who disagree with me wholeheartedly. People who love the Lord as much as we do, and yet they disagree with us. That's okay. Okay, We're a small minority, I will tell you. What I'm teaching you is a small slither of the true church today, which is a small slither of what is called the church today. So we're a tiny, tiny minority, but yet it's what the scriptures teach. And so we trust and hold. Okay? So I'm not trying to confuse you, I promise. Although at times it sounds like it. Okay, we're done. Thanks for your time. (laughs)